You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassia. As I've done with the past three anniversaries of September 11th, 2001, this episode I'm speaking to an FDNY member who responded to the World Trade Center attacks on that day. John Sudnick began his career as an FDNY firefighter, appointed in October 1985, and assigned to Engine 23 located in Manhattan. Since then, he's been promoted through every fire officer rank, and in 2019, Sudnick was promoted from Chief of Fire Operations and was appointed the 36th Chief of Department, the highest uniform rank in the FDNY. It was a beautiful, warm, late summer day when our world changed forever because two of four hijacked planes were flown into the Twin Towers in New York City, resulting in their eventual collapse and a tremendous loss of lives including 343 of our own FDNY members. Chief Sudnick responded to the terrorist attacks on September 11th from FDNY headquarters at the time in the rank of captain. Please welcome to the podcast, Chief of Department, John Sudnick. Welcome, Chief. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to have you here. And it's always good for us to be, uh, in particular, talking about this topic because it's really necessary for us to record the history of uh, our response on 9-11. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and being willing to do this. So let's start, though, from the uh, very beginning when you started what's now almost 35 years ago, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, October 1985, I was appointed to Proby School, and then I guess it was right before uh, the holidays, I got out of Proby School and was assigned to Engine 23, a great, great first spot. What brought you to the fire department? I didn't grow up in a household where I had a family member who was with the FDNY. Mm -hmm. I learned about the FDNY through friends of mine in my neighborhood. I grew up in Flushing, Queens. Uh, A lot of my friends were taking all the civil service exams. I was a college kid. Uh, I was going to college, but uh, I heard so many great things about the FDNY. I said, let me take that one just in case, and that's what I did. After I graduated college in the summer of 1985, I got a job working in the financial district as a property and casualty insurance underwriter. And the short of that is, is it was in a cubicle, hour and a half commute both ways. It was the longest three months of my life. Thankfully, I got a uh, letter from the fire department saying that I would uh, be in the October class. So I couldn't sign my letter of resignation fast enough for that job and I always like to tell the story that one day I was sitting in a cubicle and the very next week I was stretching hose lines, sliding down buildings and climbing ladders at uh, Randall's Island at Proby School. Did you fall in love? At first sight, yes ma'am. The rest is history as they say. The rest is history. (laughs) So you promote through all the ranks. Mm -hmm. I presume this required uh, an incredible amount of studying. Yes, it did. Uh, I was fortunate, even though studying sometimes could be quite arduous, to say the least, but because I loved it so much and I I took so much interest in it, I found it interesting to to read all the fire department material. It was a a long haul. I had some good advice from somebody in Engine 23, and he said, make sure you study as hard as you can because you don't want to be the person 
at the end of the list having to study for the same exam for the same rank. Mm -hmm. So I took that as some good advice. Uh, that was Tom Van Doren. He ended up becoming a battalion chief and unfortunately passed away due to 9-11 cancer several years ago. So, What was your assignment as you know the first promotion as a lieutenant? I was assigned to Division 11, covering, uh, bouncing around the 11th Division, very interesting division to bounce around, and I got to see a lot of different firehouses. Yeah, I bet. Uh, I got assigned to a, a relief group, which covers five different firehouses, and Engine 235 was one of them. And when the uh, opportunity came about and the spot opened up, I put in for it, uh, and I got it there. And I got to tell you, the years that I spent in Engine 235 were some of the best years that I've had in the department, and uh, I still have a lot of close friends that I worked with in that company. And then you take the captain's exam. Just kept going and took the captain's exam, and I got promoted to captain in 1999. Uh, again, that was a bittersweet promotion. They're all bittersweet. You don't necessarily want to leave the place that you're at, but certainly you want to try to keep going to further your career. Mm -hmm. So I got promoted to captain in 1999. When I got promoted to captain, I got assigned to cover in Division 8. Division 8 covers South Brooklyn and Staten mm -hmm. Island. So mm -hmm. I was hoping to find a opportunity someplace a little bit further east eventually. So somebody came to me one day and said, hey, would you like to work on this project for the Bureau of Operations to work on a program called Two In and Two Out. So that's where I was, had my first exposure to not just headquarters, but to senior level staff chiefs. Right. So including those was then Chief of Operations Daniel Nigro and then Chief of Department Pete Gancy. A lot of the quote-unquote players uh, down here at headquarters, and they got to know me, so right. which wasn't necessarily a bad thing. So you end up at Engine 290 and eventually uh, another detail at headquarters. Yes. And you're still working with the same Yeah, group it was of very short-lived right? detail because mm -hmm. I just started. Uh, I actually started on Monday and the day before The day before 9/11. Oh, wow. And 9/11 happened on Tuesday morning. Right. So, so how do you become aware? Were you in the building already? I was um, on the seventh floor. At that time, the chief of department's office was on the seventh floor where the chief of operations office is now. Right. I was in an office down by the pantry, and I heard some footsteps racing down the, the corridor mm -hmm. going towards Chief Gancy's office. Right. As you know, nobody runs in the hallways or the corridors <laughs> really down in, in, in Nine Metrotech. Yeah. So, uh, I popped my head out. I walked down the hallway, peeked into Chief Gancy's office, and uh, I walked in, and you could see from his window that there was uh, fire and smoke coming out of One World Trade Center. I don't remember who was with me in the office at the time, but he did say, this, this is not an accident. Mm -hmm. And he had a very uh, a serious look of concern on his face. And we moved out of the office, and Chief Gancy teamed up with Chief Nigro, and they grabbed their handy talkie radios, went into the elevator lobby, and I went out there to the elevator lobby with myself and the three lieutenants who were working with me down here at the time. What could we do? Mm -hmm. Chief Nigro said, two of you come with us, and two stay back. And I went into the elevator and went with them. So I went down to the parking garage, and off we went. 
while you are en route to this, what ends up being you know, life-changing, right? Uh, life-changing event. What are you thinking about? It's interesting because uh, Chief Nigro responded with Chief Gancy in Chief Gancy's car. Right. And he told me to take his car over there with his driver and the other lieutenant who was with me. And I remember as we were crossing over the Brooklyn Bridge and seeing how much fire that was in that building, I immediately knew that this was going to be the worst fire in our history and there was going to be a tremendous loss of life. So we uh, responded to West Street, started operating at the command post and helping out any way we can. Because I was detailed to, to headquarters, I didn't have any fire gear. Right. I had no turnout gear. I didn't have a mask. Really? So right. I helped out at the command post any way I can. I was working with Chief Gancy. I was working with uh, Chief Downey, assigning units as they came up to the command post as the additional alarm units came in. And the thing that stands out to me to this day is the amount of firefighters and fire officers who I knew personally right. that came up to the command post and that I, you know, went into the buildings and, and you never saw again. It's because I, I, being a firefighter in Manhattan, right. in the 9th Battalion, and being a, an officer, a lieutenant in the 11th Division, I got to know a lot of the people in the 11th Division right. from a lot of those companies from covering. And obviously the, in the 9th Battalion, I, I just knew all those guys mm -hmm. because I worked there. That's, I think, one of the toughest parts for me if I was the personal relationships that I had, and, and even if they were just casual relationships. It's difficult to, for me at times to look at the, it's a pretty iconic poster right. that you see around and you see all the, the 343 faces of all those that we lost on 9-11 and to take a look at that, spend a couple minutes looking at that poster and seeing the faces and the names, it kind of comes back to you. Things start to change probably pretty quickly, right? From the time that you arrived bef before Tower 2 which was the first tower to collapse, starts coming down. Did you relocate the command post at any point, or does it stay in that specific location the whole time? Yeah, so when I got to the command post, I, from what I understand, it was originally in Tower 1 in the lobby, mm -hmm. and it was moved outside to West Street, across West Street, and it uh, was in the back of One World Financial Center on the sidewalk on the top of what is the entranceway ramp to a parking garage, mm -hmm. indoor parking garage for One World Financial Center. When I got there on the scene, the command post was already moved across West Street, oh, okay. so I operated on West Street. When I got there, Chief Nigro, because I responded in his car, ironically, he wanted me to go back and get his gear, which was in the trunk of his car. So I circled back around. Uh, and fortunately, I was able to, to get his gear for him and find his, his driver actually got his gear for him, came back to the command post. So on the way back to the command post was when the second plane hit. Okay. So it felt like it was right beneath the building when the second plane hit. It seemed to me like it was surreal. It was like a, uh, I felt like I was in a movie. Yeah. I couldn't believe it was happening, what was happening. So, And then it just kind of clicked that with what Chief Gancy said at the time, that this wasn't an accident. Right. It was a beautiful, clear day. How could, right. it be, how could two planes hit the Trade Center? You know, I felt the heat actually from the fireball. So that's really? how, yeah, that's how close we were. So Certainly. now even more units are being assigned. Yeah, from uh, further distances. 
Yep. Division and 11 is right over the bridge. You've got all your battalions in lower Manhattan have to be totally committed at this point. And it takes time for, for units to get in as right. well. And as fast as units were coming in, working with Chief Downey, they would just tell me how many truck companies, how many engine companies he needed, what tower they were going to go into. And I would take companies and, you know, I'd write it, write it down mm -hmm. um, on a piece of paper where they were going. Right. We had, obviously, Fieldcom working at the command post with us, and that's kind of how it went. You know, we just, we weren't giving out any specific assignments. We were just, you know, letting them go into the building. And the chiefs that were in the lobbies of, you know, One World Trade, Two World Trade would would assign those companies as they need them. Right, the actual task that they wanted them to do. Yeah. Okay. So at what point do you realize something's changed here and the building's coming down? I was thinking, well, portions of the building would probably start falling mm -hmm. at some point from, from failure. If we ever got water on this fire, it was going to take uh, some period of time because of the logistics of trying to get hose lines up there, even if the standpipe system was working, with that much fire, with all that jet fuel in a building, it would have been, and I haven't worked in Manhattan in an engine company, mm -hmm. knowing you know, how difficult high-rise fires are, I just didn't see any way we were going to make 10 floors of fire and put the fire out before things got better. Mm -hmm. So I fully anticipated myself that there would be some kind of collapse. But I, I wasn't thinking it was going to be a total pancake collapse like it did. You know, I remember reading that a section of Chief Vinnie Dunn's book, Collapse of Burning Buildings, that when big buildings fall on smaller buildings, you know, the smaller buildings collapse. I think that's what popped into my mind immediately when I saw the um, South Tower. It started peeling down like a banana, you know, the way it was collapsing mm -hmm. floor by floor. Obviously, everybody was scurrying about, and the only place for most of us at that command post, I would say everybody would to go, was down into the parking garage. And that's where a lot of us ended up. I ended up in a small little cutout about 15 feet in, and I just waited, you know, waited for the big building to fall on top of the littler building. That didn't happen. It's just the, the rush of pressure-filled dust, you know, came through and just... I went to my ears, my nose, everything like that. I have two firefighters who were next to me in that cutout. I didn't know who they were. There must have been only one mask between them, and they turned it on and they were sharing it, and I didn't have one. So I just realized I, I had to come back out the way I came. I, I wasn't going to go deeper into a, a parking garage where I couldn't see anything to try to extricate myself out of that situation by going deeper into the building. I knew which way was out. I didn't think I was going to make it out. I thought there would be too much debris blocking me from coming out. Mm -hmm. But I waited for the noise to stop, and I got low, and I started crawling out and kept crawling, and eventually I started walking. And uh, fortunately, I was able to walk right back up the ramp. I couldn't see anything, but I walked up the ramp, and I Is made it to— Is it still total darkness? Yeah, it was— it was you can't, you can't see your hand. It was like you, you were in a, a fire situation. Which it, it seemed like you were in thick smoke, right. but it was dust. And I uh, got up to the sidewalk, and it was a little bit of a breezy day, so this, the dust was actually a little bit lighter to the north, and that's the way I walked, only because 
I could see better that way. Didn't hear anything. It was uh, one of the most eerie things that I've ever experienced. And, you know, that's coming from crawling down hallways as a firefighter and fire officer. Being in that situation, knowing that there was total pandemonium just minutes before, Mm -hmm. just was such so eerily quiet. It seemed like the end of the world. Were you aware of anybody else around you as you were coming out of this debris? To this day, I think I was the only person that walked out and didn't go to the back of the garage. I think everybody went to the back of the garage and went through a door and walked up the stairs and came out from the entrance either, you know, on Vesey Street. I don't know anybody to this day who came out the way that I did. But I had no choice. I didn't have a mask. It felt like I was eating the dust, you know. So I vomited a couple times and Mm -hmm. used. Somebody came out with a case of water from one of the local stores, Mm -hmm. some bottles of water. So I took that and just irrigated my eyes, my ears, my nose. So I was able to breathe clearly again. Just seemed like a, a few minutes after that, then the North Tower came down. So. I know it was longer, but it just it, it seemed like a, a, just a few brief minutes. So mm-hmm. you weren't working with anybody at that point. You were just now just trying to regroup. I was trying to look for anybody who I was working with, and that's primarily, you know, the people that were at the command post. Mm-hmm. So it felt like I was walking for, I don't know, for an hour by the time I, you know, circled back around, and I guess... There was an operations post or a command post that was set up. Not quite sure which, it might have been on Greenwich. And at that time, all new set of chiefs were operating at that command post. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember Chief uh, Nick Visconti at the, that command post. And they were, at that time, communicating with Captain Jay Jonas at the time. Right. And they survived that collapse mm-hmm. and were in the stairwell. Mm-hmm. So they were working to try to get those, those guys out. Any sense of cohesion that I had with the people I was working with was that they, there was nobody that I ran into for the rest of the day. Did um, you think they all died? I did. I knew there, was, there had to be hundreds of our guys right off the bat that were, were killed instantly between the two collapses. Um, tough day. It was a very tough, tough day. day. How long did you stay there? It was late in the afternoon. I ended up getting on the Long Island Railroad and went home, got my car, and then went back to the firehouse and got my gear. Mm. I came back into the firehouse and into headquarters the next day, and um, I saw Chief Nigro, and he gave me a hug. You know, there was a list. Yes, I remember that There was that a list. list, and I was on the list. I bet. So when, when he saw me, obviously he was very happy. And they asked me to stay. They asked me to stay at headquarters because they were decimated. So I said, sure, um, of course. I worked there. I got promoted, as you know, on September 16th, five days later, and got promoted to battalion chief. promotion? Yeah. I spent the next couple months working in operations, helping out, doing whatever it is. I was familiar with the way things were running there right. um, and they needed people to help I wanted to be down you know at the site but um, I en- eventually ended up going down for the month of December mm-hmm. and I took the detail down to to the pile and we did a lot of work there it was uh, some difficult days difficult days you know it's uh, you know certainly uh, a defining moment put it that way it is a defining moment. I mean, even now, 
you find yourself using it as a point of reference, right, where everything in your career is either pre-9-11 or post-9-11, as an example, even in your personal life. You find yourself sort of benchmarking everything by that one moment in time. Yeah, I, I agree with you with that. We have, as you know, since it's 19 years ago, there, there were um, you know, people that are riding on fire trucks and, and ambulances right now that were little kids mm-hmm. when this happened. Yes. I think for us, I think because it's such a defining moment, I think that everything we do, um, at least from my perspective anyway, every day we, uh, I could put the uniform on and come into work even though it's probably subconscious, it, it all goes back to that day. Mm-hmm. The effort you put in mm-hmm. every day goes back to that day. We lost a lot of leadership that day, in particular, right? We have this 343, that iconic number. We lose everybody from the first deputy fire commissioner to you know, firefighter and paramedics and every rank in between, including an FDNY chaplain. And within the upper ranks, we lose some of the most experienced, highly regarded fire officers to ever work in this department. And a consequence of that now is this sort of void, right, of this leadership void that people are going to get promoted into to filling. And about a year later, we start doing some training, new training that never been done before, specific to leadership training. And I know you took part in a lot of these leadership programs, particularly the programs that are funded by the FDNY Foundation, who also supports the podcast and FDNY Pro. Tell us about some of that training that you took and what kind of responsibility did you feel, what duty did you feel toward filling this void, this leadership void? There was an influx of of funding, federal funding, Homeland Security funding. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you remember, as a result of 9-11, came the Department of Homeland Security. Right. And the focus was on getting state and locals prepared for other events, other terrorist attacks. New York City was always considered to be one of the number one targets in the country for terrorist attacks. So we received quite a bit of funding in the, in the FDNY. So it created some, some, some pretty good programs that we, we took advantage of. Our, our hazmat capabilities were expanded tremendously. Our marine uh, capabilities right. expanded significantly. We received funding for management and leadership training, right. right? Which still continues to this day. That's right. We had a partnership with Columbia University and GE, FDNY Officers Management Institute, FOMI, a class that I took as well. Mm-hmm. I applied for and benefited from a master's degree program in Homeland Security out in California mm-hmm. uh, through the Naval Postgraduate School. Right. And I got a master's degree in Homeland Security. All those things contributed to, I think, not just my, my personal knowledge base, and, but also I think it contributed to my leadership skills that were further identified by the leaders in the department and saw my commitment to, to that effort to move the department forward, mm-hmm. especially in the years, you know, the months and years after 9-11. Right. What are some of the assignments that you were able to, you know, achieve post-9-11 and all of these educational programs. 
After 9-11, I kept on studying, and I took a uh, deputy chief's exam, I believe in 2002, and so I got promoted to deputy chief in 2003. Pretty quick promotion from the 2001 promotion yeah. to battalion chief in um, 2001, but th that was the times. Right. Uh, there were a lot of retirements after, not just uh, immediately right. after 9-11, but for the years following 9-11, there were a lot of retirements. Right. And so my career moved pretty quickly. I was assigned to Division One as mm -hmm. a deputy chief initially, and I worked there for a few years covering. And So you I, went back to Manhattan many times. I did. I was uh, battalion chief in Queens in mm -hmm. battalion 5-0. Chief of operations at the time, when I got promoted to battalion chief, was Chief Cassano. He wanted me to go back to Manhattan as a, as a battalion chief. I remember having a conversation with him saying, well, if it's okay, if I could try Queens for a couple of years, I promise you the next promotion, I will uh, I'll go back to Manhattan. Upon my promotion in 2003, he didn't forget that conversation. And <laughs> he wasn't one to forget. I went right back to Manhattan to Division One. And which great, I loved, I loved the first division, but eventually made my way back up to Division Three. After I got assigned there, I was made division commander pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Loved it there. I thought I would be there for the rest of my career, uh, but they had other plans. And in 2008, Queensboro Command opened and they considered me for the position. So 2008 to 2012, I was a Queensboro Commander in 2012, got the phone call again, Manhattan Borough Command is open, would you be interested? Who wouldn't be interested in Manhattan Borough Command? It's right? like Hollywood. So 2012 to 2014, I was the Manhattan Borough Commander. Mm -hmm. And I guess in 2014, a new administration comes in right. with a uh, new mayor and new fire commissioner who is lo and behold fire commissioner Dan Nigro also known as Chief Nigro Chief Nigro from back when I worked with him in operations and then he asked me if I would be interested in taking the uh, very important job of chief of operations and I told him I would be honored and I worked as the chief of operations from 2014 until my most current promotion to chief of department in early 2019. Did you ever at any point in all of your promotions have your eye on the prize of chief of department? You know, I did not. I always thought it was a, this unattainable position that is reserved for people who are destined for that position. I guess if once you get to chief of operations, you, you, you know, you maybe. You know, you're a heartbeat away from the big position, but I got to tell you that it's a tremendous honor to be the chief of department of the greatest fire department in the world. And although I never dreamed of it, I certainly wake up every day thankful that I am where I am. Again, uh, there's, as far as I'm concerned, there's, there's no greater fire department, and to be leading this department is, is really a, a dream come true, I guess. What does never forget mean to you? Never forget, for me, means it doesn't come around just once a year for me. It's, mm -hmm. it's every day. Never forget means understanding what the sacrifices uh, this department has made and trying to come to work and work as hard, renew my commitment, renew my dedication uh, every day to make sure that those lives that we lost weren't in vain. And 
I'm in a position now to uh, live that now more than ever. Thank you, Chief, for being here today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This was great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio. For more training and information from our department subject matter experts, go to fdnypro.org. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to fdnyfoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.